Welcome to DLA Pipers at the Intersection of Science and Law podcast. In this episode, DLA Piper partners Richard Taylor from the UK and Lauren Merza from Philadelphia discuss global perspectives of drafting contractual agreements in anticipation of supply chain fragilities and risks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast of Global Life Sciences Supply Chain Insights. You have Lauren Merza here with Richard Taylor. I am a corporate life sciences transactional partner based out of DLA Piper's Philadelphia office. Richard? And I am a commercial life sciences transactional lawyer based out of the UK. I also head up DLA's international commercial contracts for the life sciences sector. Thank you, Richard, and welcome everyone today. Richard, do you want to get into what we're talking about today? Yes, we're talking about supply chain issues and how to cater for them. Over the last couple of years, we have seen more fragility in supply chains than I think anybody has perhaps ever seen, or at least not for several decades, whether that's shortages of chips, most famously, or shortages of active ingredients. In fact, the European Commission published a paper very recently about the vulnerabilities of global supply chains in medicines, which was putting it down to complexities and specializations and outsourcing, and indeed practices like just-in-time supply. So what we want to address today is how people might deal with this how they deal with it up front in their contracts, and how they might draft their agreements to anticipate supply chain fragilities, how to renegotiate current agreements in the light of the current supply crisis, particularly around price negotiations, and the gap analysis of supply chains, which we are more and more finding ourselves being asked by clients to address. I think that was everything, Lauren. Did I miss anything? No, I don't think you missed anything. Do we want to just dive right into the drafting agreements to cover the supply chain fragility risk? Mm. We've been seeing a lot of that recently on new contracts and also amendments to existing contracts. Some of the provisions that we've been seeing a lot are allocation provisions and what to do because supply shortages are top of mind right now with customers and what you do on a contracting front to address those allocations? Is it most favored nations for allocation shortages or most equitable? And how do you define equitable? Is it cost, volume, or another metric? Absolutely. I mean, in Europe, most favored nation clauses can be challenged under antitrust competition law principles. So a pure most favored nation clause, by which I mean, by the way, my understanding as a European lawyer is a clause that says you will not favor anybody more than you're favoring me. And it's most commonly on price. There have been a slew of cases on this side of the water from the European Commission, largely around comparison websites, which have made findings about some of which have fallen on either side of the coin as to how enforceable they are. But a pure most favored nation clause, you've got to bear in mind from a European perspective, could be vulnerable to challenge. So that's unlike an allocation clause. By an allocation clause, what I understand that to mean is something that says, look, if you do have a shortage, then you won't favor one customer over another customer. You'll apportion it fairly between all of your customers who might be experiencing the same shortage. And that would be, I'm pretty confident, upheld as valid in Europe. But I don't know how the situation is, how that compares with the US. 
Yeah, on the U.S. side, I have had a number of clients that have requested an allocation provision saying, we will be first in line. So when I mentioned most favored nations, they're blending the most favored nations from a pricing perspective versus an allocation provision of make sure I'm first if there is a shortage. But no, in the true sense of allocation, it is what's most equitable. Now, in contract drafting, it could be who determines what's most equitable, unless you say the most equitable or fair and equitable in supplier's discretion. Or if you don't have that within the supplier's discretion, does that make it potentially an independent determination of what's most fair and equitable and how you would determine that if something was challenged? I suppose as well, how do you police it? No suppliers can open their books as to who exactly all of their customers are and how much they're supplying to each of them. So how exactly do you go about policing it? Maybe it's the mere presence of it, the fact that this has been thought about and this has been expressed might go some way if you do find yourself suddenly hit by a shortage. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, one of the other things that comes up on supply chain and drafting agreements is force majeure. We've seen a lot of topics on force majeure over the past couple of years, particularly in the sense of what happens now with the COVID pandemic and my contract and delays, supply shortages and supply disruption and delays because of the force majeure provisions. But when you're forward looking at we're negotiating a new contract now, what we've been seeing with respect to force majeure. And just as a reminder, force majeure is a provision in a contract that excuses a party's performance if there's unforeseen circumstances. So that's what we're talking about with force majeure. And we've been seeing a lot of specific callouts on the mm. COVID pandemic, but also pandemic circumstances in force majeure provisions. And part of that could be under New York law, at least here on state side, it only excuses a party's non-performance in the event the party's non-performance is specifically identified in the force majeure provision. So what used to be a catch-all provision, at least here on the state side, where it was any events beyond a party's reasonable control. So you'd have this catch-all provision. And now there's a lot more specificity that's going into these force majeure because it's a provision people now pay attention to. Oh, you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, it's a sort of that you learned about all those years ago at law school, this thing called force majeure, and it's a bit of Latin, and it made us all feel rather grand. And then you had these clauses, which for years, really no one paid that much attention to, you just made sure one was in there. But what was actually within it, I don't think a lot of people were really focusing on. And then in April, May 2020, almost their entire business was people coming to us with kind of force of force majeure clause. And from a European perspective, people were treating them as if they were a single thing. And what we were learning was that they really weren't. They were what they said on the tin. And different force majeures clauses said different things and had different degrees of enforceability, depending on the circumstances. And now, as you say, people are much more focused on what might be in them. And particularly, actually, whether you're including or excluding pandemic-related force majeure causes. I don't know if you're seeing that. I am seeing that. And I'm also seeing it going a step further where... The situation at the effective date, although it's pandemic circumstances, particularly right now, may not trigger a force majeure because the parties are entering into the agreement. So they don't want the same or similar circumstances at the effective date to trigger a force majeure. So it's not just pandemic right. circumstances, but pandemic circumstances that have substantially changed from those pandemic circumstances 
existing as of the effective date. So I'm seeing that level of negotiation right now around a force majeure provision. I'm also seeing supply inability. So one of the things that I've been seeing being brought up and we've been putting into force majeure is raw material supply availability and Mm. commercial supply availability because of what we'll get into later, which is some of these risks with some raw materials and their inability to source them right now. Yeah. I mean, you hope, of course, you're not driven to that. And what you'd hope is that you can anticipate this better in the contract, because we've talked so far about allocation of force majeure, and both of those things are important when you do hit the buffers. But actually, a lot of energy could be spent on thinking about systems to anticipate the risks that there could be some kind of shortage. So I'm thinking here in terms of things like rolling forecasts and forecasts, let's say, six months in advance, and then it firms up three months in advance so that you're giving yourself time if there is a problem to try and find some fast solution rather than just landing on your desk one day, right? Exactly. Risk mitigation from the supply perspective is also as supply chain surety with the rolling forecasts and also making sure that you have stock retention. So whether you manage the inventory and obviously in life sciences, this all depends on the shelf life of your product and how stable it is and where it is in the chain, right? If it's clinical or commercial supply and where you are on the stability testing of how long that specific product could hold up. But we are seeing a lot more of that from a client perspective on supply chain and making sure supply chain management is having that retention of stock and enough inventory so that not only do they have the contractual protections with the rolling forecasts, as you mentioned, and binding orders, but also they're helping to manage it on their end as well by making sure that they have enough inventory to weather a storm if there is, for instance, a force majeure. Yeah, and you make a really good point there about stability because that's, I think in this space, there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution, is there? I mean, there couldn't be because you're talking about products that may have different stability levels that may need different temperature controls. Supply chains for a generic is going to be quite different from a supply chain for an innovator by and large. And obviously, comparing, say, biologics to devices is a whole different thing as well in terms of how much time you need. Are there alternative suppliers? Where are those alternative suppliers? Actually, just one interesting fact that came out of the European Commission paper that I mentioned was that the active pharmaceutical ingredient, the API, 17%, for 17% of APIs used in medicines in Europe, there is no facility for manufacturing them in Europe. They come purely out of non-European sources, which is itself a rather startling prospect. That's a big number where you can't just turn around and get it quickly from the country next door. You've got to be reaching out far further and working out far greater distances in your supply chain. That is significant. The globalization of supply chains, though, right now has really increased. I read that it's been an almost six-fold increase of the market of pharma products in the past two decades, from 2000 to 2019. So almost six-fold. So it really has increased quite a bit. And because of that, there has to have been globalization of supply sourcing and supply chain. And that is one of the things setting up secondary suppliers and alternative suppliers. Some of these APIs, like you mentioned, there is exclusivity in the market. So when you're contracting with the supplier, 
do they have a secondary source for that API? And if not, do you have a step in right for that mm. ability to go out and get that API from somewhere else? But along with that, there has to be a tech transfer of that information so that secondary supplier can get up online. And there's Absolutely. a lot of time and details associated with that. Yeah, the tech transfer, the freedom around intellectual property and confidential information and all of those things can be a whole negotiation game in itself. And with all of these things, I'd add, of course, it's if you, the consumer, the customer, are prepared to pay for it. I mean, if you take stock retention, for example, stock retention to a certain level comes at a cost. Are you prepared to pay that additional cost? There's a lot of spinning plates there, aren't there? Yes. In addition to stock retention, these are expensive products. So mm. you're paying up front in advance of when you'd need them. So we've seen penalties for delay or failure to supply, but a lot of those penalties pale in comparison to what the lost profits would be, which on the US side, a lost profit is typically on the indirect damages side, which a lot of times we see suppliers capping those indirect damages. So there may be a penalty there, but they're not the true value to make the customer whole if there is a supply chain failure. The actual cost. And will there be a penalty? Will they accept a penalty anyway? I mean, a penalty exactly. clause in there. I mean, some people are going to turn around and just give you a flat no. Because the background to this whole discussion is that fragility of global supply chain is the reality. And it seems to me that you as the purchaser, as the customer, you've got to accept at some level that there is that fragility and you're trying to between you, work out how you're going to deal with it when you get there. I mean, I've seen one contract which was sent to me where the supplier had essentially put in a clause that said, well, global supply chains are fragile and we may be able to supply at any time or we may not. And we may be able to do it at the price that we quoted or we may not. My client was coming to me going, you know, are these people for real? Can they do this? <laughs> you said they can try, but I mean, I really wouldn't enter into this contract. But I was also saying we can't just behave like 300 pound tigers here. We've got to try and work with these people, accept that there are risks. And what are we actually going to do when problems do crop up? Yeah. So speaking of when problems crop up, so renegotiation of current agreements, have you been seeing a lot of renegotiation of current supply agreements given the current environment? Well, where there are cost renegotiations, actually, often people are doing that themselves. Cost negotiations are tricky, right? Because there are so many factors that can go into cost. And why would anyone negotiate a cost to their disadvantage unless you're actually threatening to pull out completely? But the general principle of renegotiation, I've got this contract. I know I entered into this contract with you. I know I signed it on the bottom line, but frankly, we've just got to renegotiate it, is happening and is emerging to lawyers more and more. What are you seeing? I've been seeing it quite a bit, yes, because mm. the environment's changed. And a lot of supply agreements are very long-term agreements. So you're talking about 10, 15-year agreements for yeah. supply, and the environment right now is very different than it was 10 years ago. So there's revisits of terms with respect to like we were just talking about in drafting new agreements, like supply failures and allocation and those types of provisions. But then also, to your point, costs. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of issues right now with costs. So I do see, similar to your experience, that 
straight cost and pricing renegotiations are done at a business level. And we tend to not be looped in except to mitigate against future issues Mm. from a contracting perspective. But the other terms with respect to step-in rights or a secondary supplier or the allocation penalties, those were being brought in to help renegotiate. And really it's approaching a supplier and saying, look, we need to risk share here. We need to figure out how to make this work for both of us because the current agreement doesn't work. And that's the starting point. Yeah. You're looking, I guess, at what's gone wrong. What's the problem? You're identifying if there has been a problem, what was it? And how do you collaboratively try and resolve it going forward so that you can continue to have a fruitful relationship? You all know where the pitch lines of the pitch lie and what the rules of the game are. That said, how are you finding it in terms of bargaining positions? I mean, it's all very well, but if you're in a weak bargaining position, if you're dependent on this supplier who's got is one of one or two in the world who could supply this, then there's only so much you can do. Would you say or would you say not? I completely agree. It all comes down to leverage as in any negotiation. Mm. It's all about who has the leverage and the bargaining position. It depends on whether you can get the material elsewhere. And I've seen clients look to see what it costs to get somebody else up to scale or going to the position on IP. Is there proprietary technology where you're locked into the supplier or do you own the IP and you've tech transferred it in and you own any improvements to that manufacturing process so that you're able to pull it out? And some of that comes down to what the terms of the contract are and some of it comes down to whether you've gone to the CMO with the manufacturing process and have all the IP covered. So it's marrying up your IP strategy with what the current contract says and looking at it from a holistic perspective. Yeah. I'd also say on that point of leverage that you can be quite surprised. I've been in situations where my client is a much, much, much smaller player and you think, are we going to get nowhere here with this? And actually you find some larger companies or some virtual monopolies actually being more reasonable than you think. They might be, and I've seen it the other way around as well. Oh my goodness, when you've got someone who really is a minor player who you think should just be accepting all the terms that you're offering, and they're kicking and screaming like a kind of two-year-old brat, and you think, hold on, guys, you're in no position to shout at me like that. But often you find that you can negotiate these things more than you necessarily realize. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. And I do think that sometimes it is surprising the position that people take based on their perceived leverage or non-leverage, but it is up to us to help bridge the gap, like you said, and come to a deal and try to help the client get it forward. When it comes to price, you do see clauses that are saying if there's an increase in the price of raw materials, then we can increase our prices. But how easy are those? I've always wondered how easy those clauses are to actually enforce in practice. I have seen supply spikes on certain raw materials and they come back and say, what does it say about audit? What does it say about them showing us how many proposals do they have to get for this raw material? Or they may have a supply agreement and there could be exclusivity provisions or it's just their preferred supplier. Mm. And it could be for a number of reasons. And they think that we could get it somewhere else cheaper. So Building all those terms in is important. Is there a requirement to either show the increase or is there a requirement for them to get multiple bids for that raw material if it's available 
from multiple sources. Some of these raw materials, though, there is a shortage and that's what's causing the supply spike. So I've seen provisions where if there is a supply spike and it costs more to get it on time versus maybe paying less for a delay, if that's up to the client or the customer to be able to elect whether they'd want that delay or whether they'd want to pay that extra money for that raw material. Uh, Okay, yeah. Again, it comes down to what you're prepared to pay for. Exactly. And what's in the contract with this? Sometimes none of this is spelled out in the contract and it just comes down to the negotiation with the parties. And then some you can get into the nitty gritty and every single detail and try to contract around every scenario. Oh, for sure. And in the meantime, people have got sales breathing down their neck to just sign the damn contract. Why are you messing around with step-in clauses? That's never going to happen. Or force majeure. Well, that's yeah. never going to happen. Well, I mean, contracts are like umbrellas that you hope you'll never have to open because everything will run so smoothly. I was going to just jump in with the shortage. Sometimes I see a trigger point. So the raw material has to be above, say, 10 or 15% before it's triggered that they can come back to you and renegotiate on that raw material price to renegotiate on the overall price. That's in a scenario where it's a fixed price contract and there's not a cost plus. So sometimes the supply is on a cost plus metric and in that event, the price is what it is based on those cost plus. But if it's a firm cost, there's a trigger point that makes it that they can come to you and renegotiate for that raw material. Which makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? Because you don't want to be negotiating, getting different prices every time there's every little fluctuation in the raw materials prices. So some sort of trigger point makes sense. you just got to think about what's going into it. Yeah, agreed. And historically, we've seen a lot of agreements tied to price increases or tied to like a PPI index. And whether that index is correct. And right now with the inflation in the markets the way they are, we've been seeing much higher price increases if they're tied to that index, particularly getting into November, which a lot of times in these agreements between November and January is where these prices start increasing for the next year. So you're starting to see more questions popping up, at least from clients regarding the PPI and how that's flushing out. Mm. Are clients coming to you and asking you to roll back over their contracts and do some gap analysis, for example? Yes. We've seen an uptick on clients requesting us to really map out their supply chain and do a gap analysis on the proactive end to identify some vulnerabilities that they may have. Some are setting up risk monitoring systems as well with respect to the supply chain because supply chain resilience really goes to strategic planning and it affects the whole organization. On the U.S. front, the White House has taken notice of supply chain vulnerabilities. And they actually put out a report that there was a 100-day supply chain review report that provided that the COVID-19 pandemic and resulting economic dislocation revealed longstanding vulnerabilities in the U.S. supply chains. Now, this isn't life sciences-based, but this is over all supply chains. And on September 12th, here on the U.S. front, there was an executive order that was issued specifically for advancing biotechnology and biomanufacturing innovation 
for sustainability and safe and secure American bioeconomy. So there's definitely eyes on this, mm. not just from the clients, but from the political perspective as well. Yeah, we're seeing just the same on this side of the pond. Again, the European Commission report recently was recommending the categorization of medicines as of emergency product. Effectively, what they were saying was where the government could step in at a certain point to enforce supply chains and ensure there was that continuing supply. How that would happen in practice, I couldn't tell you, but it shows how strongly there are eyes on this. And indeed, yeah. on the healthcare systems, because we've been focusing here on supply and customers in the sector itself. But the ultimate customer is our healthcare system. And there have been quite strong calls over here for greater transparency of those systems in both what they might be anticipating in terms of orders, what they might be anticipating in terms of spikes, so that the industry can cater accordingly. Yeah. And just making this whole circle, these gap analyses that these clients are asking us to perform, we're looking and mapping out their entire supply chain and looking at the contractual provisions. And sometimes it does give rise to renegotiation because there will be an identification of a weakness. So it's either do we renegotiate and approach the supplier or is this something circling back to the top of this podcast where we were talking about what are some steps that customers can take and sometimes it's managing inventory and getting higher inventory levels to help mitigate those risks. So it's not our people, it's the healthcare systems. I think we're concluding. (laughs) (laughs) They need to be looking out for us. Joking aside, it is just a generally collaborative approach that I think you've got to try and take. And happily in this sector, my experiences, and there may be some listeners who'll just snort at this, but my experience that customers and suppliers actively want to be collaborative if possible, if they can. I think that's generally right. I generally agree with that because at the end of the day, they entered into these agreements and it comes down to money as well, right? Mm. So everybody wants to make money and the suppliers don't do that if they're not selling to the customer and the customer doesn't do that if they can't get it to market. So it's a win-win for everyone. Yeah. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed this podcast and learned some insights into supply chain. Richard, do you have any closing remarks? I do. I think that this is an area where there is no one size fits all. You've got to work out in practice what's going to work and in practice what protections you need before you start reaching for the law. And when you've worked that out, actually, I find that the contract drafting itself, the papering of the deal, actually becomes a whole lot easier. I wholeheartedly agree, and I think that was an excellent wrap-up to this discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening to DLA Pipers at the Intersection of Science and Law podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the series so you can receive notifications about new episodes. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. 
This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast.